0: reading from verses 30 through 33. Hear the word of God. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, every one saying to his brother, Please, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Amen. Father God, I commit this time of worship to you and pray that the responses of our hearts and uh, our understanding of your word would glorify you. And I pray, Father, we would come forth from this place, different people, as a result of having tasted of your word. We pray that you would enable me to faithfully bring it. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. <clears throat> I've titled the sermon, Measuring Success by God's Standards. Uh, we've been going through uh, some of the foundations of our church, and one of those foundations would have to be, uh, what does it look like for a church to be a success in God's eyes? How would God evaluate this church? How do you tell if a church is a success or if it is not? And I study a lot of church growth um, materials and uh, leadership management and things like that, and. You'd be surprised at the number of different answers you get as to what is a successful church plant. I talked to a church planter who had a large church at the end of three years, vibrant programs, there's all kinds of things happening. It was a church that was just hopping, and it would be a a church plant that a lot of pastors would have just been thrilled to be a part of. But this man felt very sorrowful. Over this church and felt sorrowful that he had been pushing in certain directions and failed to push in other directions. And he said his church was a failure in the eyes of God. And when he began to describe what the church was like, I had to agree. Several years ago I was struck uh, by the contrast found between books I had on church growth and the books that I had on personal growth, personal growth of holiness. Uh, The books on church growth emphasized Programs, leadership methods, services, you know, that would be demanded by our uh, very demanding uh, culture, consumer generation. And uh, I looked at the books on personal growth and I saw an entirely different perspective. Almost all of them emphasized the need for transformation, total submission to God's word, need for mortification of sin, that's putting sin to death. Okay, pursuit of holiness, imperative prayer, empowerment of the Holy Spirit, influence of culture. Of course, those guys didn't write the books that were on church growth, but I often wondered why were those standards in the second area not also the measures of church success in, in the first case? Uh, judged by church growth standards, Jesus was a failure because he had a Scottish revival near the end of his ministry, you know, where he lost all kinds of people. Uh, he was not sensitive to the Generation X. Well, he didn't have it back then, but they had the same sinful propensities that all of us do. And, you know, the churches in Acts that were growing did not have the same sensitivity that a lot of these people in seminars say we've absolutely got to have. One whole seminar I attended two years ago on leadership was trying to convince us that Generation X would just not buy into the principles that historically the church is considered absolutely imperative, biblical imperatives. They said, you've got to compromise if you're going to reach people. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, wh- wh- why do we want to reach people if they're not going to be transformed? I, I got kind of a chuckle, actually, from that one seminar because uh, this guy was, showed how out of touch he was with the audience that he was speaking to. Here, we've paid good money to come to this uh, seminar that was specifically designed for these pastors. And this guy was going on and on about all of the different things that churches would have to have in place if they were going to be successful church plants, and a lot of us are thinking, man, that's going to take a lot of money, it's going to take a lot of people, how in the world are we going to do this? One of the pastors had the the courage to raise his hand and said, "Uh, you know, most of us in this audience are either in churches that are less than 100 or are planning to start churches with less than 100, how many people do you think we have to have to have a successful church plant? And without batting an eye this uh church growth expert said he wouldn't even think of starting a church with a core group that had less than 600 people he says otherwise you'll never be able to provide all of the programs that a consumer oriented society is demanding and he was talking about smaller families you know over 200 families that uh he said so we're all commiserating afterwards and saying well i guess uh, none of our churches are going to be a success because we just don't have those kind of, of resources uh, one of the important books in my spiritual development was Jonathan Edwards' book, uh, A Treatise on Religious Affections. How many people have read that? Nobody's read that? That is an amazing book. Absolutely amazing. Uh, what it did is it presented to people the kind of uh, virile Christianity, powerful Christianity that God in His Word calls us to. And uh, it, it caused quite a stir back then. But. One of the things, I love that book, but one of the things that's frightening in that book is it describes what I think a great deal of um, convincingness, I can't think of what the right word would be, Uh, why many people who think they are Christians and attend churches regularly are really not Christians. And uh, it, was, it was quite uh, uh, a book, uh, an eye-opener. He says, Every grace that God produces in his people, Satan produces a counterfeit. God produces peace? Well, Satan produces a counterfeit peace. The Holy Spirit <coughs> gives joy? So does Satan. God gives assurance? Satan gives false assurance. And he goes down through all of the different graces and shows how Satan can produce a counterfeit there. Now, there are places where it's clear, clear clear-cut the differences between what God produces and what Satan or what our flesh can produce in our lives. And the Sermon on the Mount uh, outlines, you know, a number of those clear-cut contrasts, you know, where he calls us to love our enemies. Well, that's not something your flesh is going to delight in doing. Or he calls us to rejoice when we're persecuted and people say all kinds of evil against us falsely. Um, And he calls us to, uh, to... Uh, serve for God's glory rather than for our own, giving our all up to the Lord. In fact, I was really blessed this past week with a couple who had said that the Lord had just prompted them to literally kneel on the ground and put their necks out and say, Lord, put your uh, your feet upon our neck. We want you to be our master forever. We want to follow after your word. Well, that's what Christ was getting at. What kind of a God are we willing to serve? Is it just a God that's in our own making? Because I am convinced that the God many people love is not the God of the Scripture, an idolatrous, a false God. The, 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 they love a kindly old God who ignores their sin and rewards stupidity and disobedience. Uh, they bristle with hatred against the God who would send people to hell. They hate the God of holiness. They hate the God of predestination. And they show themselves to be utterly unregenerate because the God that they love is not the God of the Scripture. Their hearts are not in submission. Well, here is a chapter where Ezekiel is pretty excited, getting excited about the fact that there is an apparent revival going on. There's all kinds of interest in the Word of God. And this was not true all the time. Many times these prophets would get persecuted. Here's a prophet who has quite a following. And in terms of modern church growth standards, he must have been doing something right because he's got phenomenal numbers, phenomenal interest and enthusiasm, and yet God cautions him and says, you know, your church plant is not a success. There are problems in your church plant. And so I want to look, first of all, at the inadequate signs of success. Did we, Larry, did we get uh, outlines out? Yes. We did, okay. So you, they can follow along. First of all, we should not assume that just because there is great interest in the pastor and great interest in the pastor's message that the people are regenerate. Now, this is one of the things that strokes pastor's egos, you know, but God warned him and said, Hey, don't get too excited about this. The passage begins by saying, As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you. And they were not talking bad things about him. It wasn't roast preacher. They were saying all kinds of kind things. They were saying, Hey, come, you gotta listen to this pastor. He's a great pastor. You gotta listen to his word. First phrase indicates he was the talk of the town. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls. Okay, that's uh That's um, private conversation. Then it says, in the doors of the houses, the doors lead out to the streets, So that's the public conversation. You could not wish for higher visibility than Ezekiel had managed to achieve uh, with these people. But God indicated that was nothing to get excited about because there was no change of heart. There was no genuine discipleship happening, no vibrant ministry that had impacted their lives and transformed them. So your love for theology and your love for my preaching is not a sign that you are regenerate. I think the regenerate do have a love for the Word. (laughs) They always have a love for the Word, but there are unregenerate people who also love to hear preaching so long as they don't have to put it into practice. Now, this next one may be a shocker. Being a witness and, and even leading people to Christ is no guarantee that you are regenerate, that your life has been transformed by God's grace here are people witnessing to others, saying, "Hey, you've got to come to this, uh, you know, evangelistic crusade. You've got to come and hear what uh, Ezekiel is, is talking about." And perhaps some of those who were led may have even come to a saving knowledge of of Christ. We don't know, but one of the most successful evangelists in Canada was a a man who actually just recently uh, died. Uh, he was slated to be the Billy Graham of of Canada, and. Yet, because of doubts over evolution, and especially it started with evolution, he said, he began to have doubts of the scripture, and eventually he abandoned the scriptures and became an atheist. And so here was a guy who led people genuinely to the the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were many young people who had become converted under his ministry, and yet he was utterly unregenerate. Just because a person is a witness, and I think believers ought to be witnesses, but just because you are a witness, is no guarantee that you are saved. Judas was a witness, too. He went out two by two with the other disciples, and nobody had the least idea that he was not a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, faithful attendance at church is not a sign of regeneration. Here is a congregation that's got all kinds of tares in it. They're not wheat. All kinds of terrors, and yet, boy, are they faithful in their church attendance. Look at verse 31. So they come to you as people do, they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. Now, don't get me wrong. God expects faithful attendance. He says they sit before you as my people do. Okay, My people do uh, come regularly to uh, to worship, God says. But just because a person is coming to church regularly does not mean that he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that there is a transformation. You know, cars are park, parked in garages and, uh, and, and, and they're intended for cars, but just because a bicycle is parked in a garage does not make it a car, does it? Just because, uh, you know, a garage is made for cars. And in the same way, there are many people who attend church just like Christians do, and yet it's no indication that they are genuinely changed by God's grace. Um, I have talked to people in mainline denominations that put some of our people to shame in their faithfulness. They have not missed a service in years, and yet they are total strangers to the grace of the Lord. Total strangers. What are your motives for coming to church? Is it just because you're going to feel guilty because somebody's going to say, hey, where were you, you know, last Sunday? Uh, Is it, uh, you know, just tradition? What are the reasons why you come to church? Are you driven by a love for the Lord? Is your heart drawn out to Him? Um, One time that it says God seeks people, it says true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And so the Father seeks worshipers And true heart worship is important to him, but you can have faithful attendance without having true heart worship. Okay, look at verse 32. In Ezekiel's congregation, there's a great deal of understanding of the word, okay, and that's tremendous. Their minds are in gear. Verse 32 says, they listen to your word. Man, that's an improvement over some congregations. They (laughs) listen to your word. I mean, here's a preacher who's thrilled, you know, everybody's taking notes. They're listening to what he is having to say. And yet he indicates that that word has not sunk in and done its transforming work. It says they hear your words, but they will not practice them. And so my measure for success in this church is not to have at the end of five years or ten years, uh, you know, a congregation full of people that have filled their heads with doctrine. I believe Christians should fill their heads with doctrine. I think doctrine is so important. I devoted an entire sermon to the importance of studying God's word. But you can have doctrine in your head. And still not be a true believer. Did you know that Satan knows the Bible inside out? He can quote it. To, he can quote it to Christ, uh, and uh, he knows he knows the doctrines of the faith, and he hates them. So, just having doctrine enough is, is not going to uh, save us. Uh, and God says Ezekiel's congregation here is not a success. As Jonathan Edwards points out, there are many people. In fact, I uh, who was it? It was. Um, um, uh, not Elizabeth Elliot uh, the the lady that r- wrote uh, Heal My Herds J- uh, K. Arthur, her pastor was a pastor in an evangelical church for years before he realized that he was unsafe he was unsafe and uh, I've talked to others, there was a, a Presbyterian minister back east who had ministered for years in incredibly a successful ministry and he came to the realization that he was had been unregenerate in his ministry. It was a formalist ministry. And so we've got to be very careful that just knowing the right theology is not enough. This passage goes on to show another false criteria that was fooling Ezekiel. Uh, Verse 31 says, With their mouth they express much love, or they show much love. Or as the NIV words it, With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. And so just the fact that you've got a great animation and glow, a zeal for the Lord that even makes other Christians covet your relationship with the Lord is not an indication you've got a genuine relationship with the Lord. I have seen enthusiastic, warm, and tender cult members. Uh, With their mouth, they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for gain. See, that's the issue. Uh, Dr. Crabindon used to always say the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Where is the heart? Has it truly been changed? Has it been regenerated? In Gardner Springs' book, The Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character. By the way, if you, if you have a hard time reading uh, Jonathan Edwards, read Gardner Springs' book. It's kind of a summary of what uh, he wrote. But anyway, in that book, he says, If a man, in his supposed love to God, has no ultimate regard except to his own happiness, If he delights in God, not for what he is, but for what he is to him, in other words, for what he can get out of God, in such a sentiment, there is no moral virtue. There is indeed great love of self, but no true love to God. But where the enmity of the carnal mind is slain, the soul is reconciled to the divine character as it is. We need to ask, who is it that we love, that we profess to serve? Is it a God in our own image? I think many times people make God in their own image, A God who's not that careful about holiness because they don't want to forsake certain sins. Do you make him a servant whose sole purpose in life is to answer your prayers and to make you happy? That, again, is not what God is about. God is here to put his feet upon your neck and to say, you are my slave for life. You do as I call you to do. And I will delight you, but that's not the purpose. We find most delight when we glorify God. God is most glorified when we delight in Him. So we're not saying you can't delight in the Lord. All of these things are things Christians do. They experience. But what we need to ask, is my heart been changed by the grace of Almighty God? I know people who raise their hands in devotion on Sunday, and then they support abortion on Monday. I know uh, one person who is a, uh, a homosexual who has no intentions of leaving his homosexuality but if he came into this church, as he came into our old church from time to time, if he came into this church and worshiped, you would probably think, there is a man who truly loves God. You would see the devotion. You would see the emotion that was there. And yet, he is utterly unregenerate. Now, I'm bringing these things up because so many times we put our confidence in our feelings, we put our confidence in even our spiritual giftings. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit bestows gifts on the whole covenant community, and there are unregenerate people who have spiritual gifts. The fact that a person has a spiritual gift is no indication that he is regenerate. Did you know that Judas healed? He prophesied. He he engaged in all kinds of things that the other disciples did. Nobody knew that he was unregenerate. They didn't know he was a thief. It manifested itself in his lawlessness. But uh, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and let's read verses 21 and following. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me. Now, that word, many, is a scary word. He's not just saying this is a rare exception. You know, Judas was the exception. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Jesus never contradicts the fact that these people have done these miracles or have prophesied or have done other things like that. Here are people, in fact, who are surprised when Jesus says that they're not believers. They don't belong to him. They thought all this time because they had spiritual gifts and they were engaging in the charismata that they were believers. And Jesus says to them, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, some people misuse this verse to say people can lose their salvation. They say they must have been saved. They had spiritual gifts. Now, he didn't say, I once knew you, and then you lost your salvation. He says, I never knew you. You never tasted of my grace in your heart. All you had was some of the outward benefits of belonging to the covenant community uh, of people. So we've got to examine our hearts. Are we truly uh, believers? Um, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 5 says that there are people who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted of the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and yet he goes on to say they are utterly unregenerate never been transformed. They never were uh, truly one of God's sons. See, having gifts of the Spirit is not an indication of regeneration or of the baptism of the Spirit, as so many charismatics wrongly assume, because, uh, I mean, in the covenant community, the Spirit does it, but Satan can counterfeit it as well. Uh, my mother knows a missionary out in Ethiopia uh, who was sitting in a worship service in an Ethiopian congregation, and she saw this one Ethiopian uh, Speaking in tongues and she said there was such a look of joy and rapture on his face as he was speaking in tongues She said I've got to have that. I want that kind of joy. I want that kind of reality in my life Well, then she was suddenly shocked because the elders escorted this man out because he was not following the rules that Paul had set down for tongues in in the congregation And instantly, this man's countenance changed from rapt joy, which Satan can give, to an evil countenance, and he began to curse and to blaspheme. Now, the other people knew him, probably, and were escorting him out. She had not yet seen the fruit. Now she was seeing the fruit all of a sudden and realizing, whoa, there are some pretty convincing counterfeits out there. So I want to caution you. Uh, There are people in this city who are charismatics and who and and there are some beautiful Christians who are charismatics okay I'm not saying that but just because you have the gifts does not mean that you are safe some of these people do not believe in the trinity do not believe in the inerrancy of scripture their lifestyle shows a perpetuation and lawlessness that to me evidences total unregeneration in fact there is some people who Have looked at other religions that speak in tongues and they say well if the spirit has accepted them we must accept them as well Nonsense the spirit does not receive people in because of that God's criteria are that there must be a transformed heart a changed heart And so this is not a sermon on charismatic gifts I'm just saying the things that God gives to us There are many things that are out there that are not of the essence of what it means to be a true believer Hebrews tells us, pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. He's saying, if you don't have holiness in your life, you're not a believer. God did not come to save us and make us comfortable in our sins. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, he shall save his people from their sins. If you're not being saved progressively from your sins, it's an indication that you are not yet a taster of saving grace. Titus 2.16 speaks of these counterfeits and says they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Let me give you one more false evidence of success. Ezekiel's congregation really, really enjoyed the worship services. They were getting down. I mean, they just really were into this. Look at verse 32. Oops, I lost my place. Ezekiel Verse 32, indeed you are to them as a very lovely song, of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. Now I want you to get that. They liked hearing Ezekiel as much as they liked going to a a concert, a great concert. And God's point was, as long as Ezekiel was not stepping on toes, these people were quite content to attend and to, to come to this church. And you can have every one of the things that are uh, listed in this chapter be still as unsaved as Judas was. You can have a great interest in my preaching. You can be a witness. You can have faithful attendance, understand a great deal of theology, express and maybe even feel devotion to the Lord, raising your hands with rapt adoration to the Lord, and enjoy the worship services, and yet be without the life of Christ within. Each of those things can be counterfeited by Satan. Now, you're the ones who are in the best, place to be able to know your own hearts and so what i want to do is i want to spend the remainder of my time on the evidences of success in god's eyes and this passage deals with two evidences first heart transformation where there's a total reorientation of our heart to the lord and then secondly a passion for holiness let's look at transformation verse 31 says their hearts pursue their own gain." The heart is the very center of a person. It's the seat of the mind, the will, the emotions, and those three things are an indication of whether our heart has been transformed or not. Uh, First of all, the mind. God tells Ezekiel that their mind had not been changed by the Spirit. Verses 31 and 32 say they heard his words. They even discussed them. Their minds were in gear in one sense, but they're like those in Matthew 13 where Jesus says, hearing, they hear not. Okay, They heard the words, but not with spiritual ears. Okay, they've not received him with spiritual ears. And there are many examples that could be given. Look at verse 17. Yet the children of your people say, the way of the Lord is not fair, but it is their way which is unfair. Okay, here are people who are looking at God's laws and they say, that's not fair. Oh, I don't like that. And so, as James says, they have become judges of the law. And when you become a judge of the law, you're no longer in submission to it. You're in rebellion against that law. And so here are people whose minds are the judges. They say, Eh, that one I can believe in the Bible, that one I can't. Well, that's an evidence of an unregenerate heart, an unregenerate mind. And um, let me just give you some examples. Romans 8, I'll just read you several verses from here of uh, the the difference between one who is a regenerate mind and one who does not. (coughs) In verse 5, he says, For those who live to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. First thing that happens when you become regenerate is you begin to be more and more preoccupied with the things of God and less and less preoccupied with the desires of your own flesh. Verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Again, if the only time you think about the Spirit you know, as in church or in devotions, again, it's a sign that there's something wrong here. Uh, Verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. I always get nervous when Christians either ignore God's law or outright say, I don't agree with that, you know, whether it's Old Testament law or whatever, or think some of God's Old Testament laws were barbaric, or that the imprecatory psalms, you know, that's barbaric, you know, Christians can't. I can't do that. That is a scary thing to me because what is happening is our mind is Lord instead of allowing God's mind to be governing our mind. And any time we think God's ways are too harsh or too lenient, too broad or too narrow, we have become the judges in our mind. It's another indication of an unregenerate mind. It's an enmity with God. 1 Corinthians two fourteen. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And then he goes on to say what happens When we get regenerated, the mind is open to being instructed. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so the first test to see whether your heart is regenerate is, is my mind instantly ready to have an issue settled if the Bible says it? Is my mind subject to the scripture? Am I always wrestling with it and trying to explain the scripture away or get out from under its commandments? Do I see anything in the scripture as foolish? So the mind is the first part of the heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The second part of the heart is the will. And so the second indication of a regenerate heart is that the will is aligned to God and to his word. Look at verse 31. <clears throat> it says, So they come to you as people do, they sit before you as my people, they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Okay, They will not do them. It's a matter of not cannot, but will not. They don't want to do God's word. And you know, it's not an issue. Some people say, you know, I'm basically submissive to God. Nine times out of ten, I do what God wants. But you know, the issue is, it's not submission if the nine times out of ten, it was something you wanted to do anyway. And the only time that you disobey God is the times that you're not comfortable with it. That's not submission. Submission is where it's hard for your flesh. It's difficult for you. And yet you pursue after the Lord. Anyway, now it's true. We do have struggles as Christians. So just because you have struggles does not mean that you are a non-Christian. And that's why Ezekiel 34 says it's so imperative that you have shepherds who can rebuke, who can lead, who can guide, who can uh, feed you uh, as you need. But, uh, you know, we shepherds, we can't change your will. We are dependent upon God having already made you into sheep. We can't shepherd non-sheep. And so the first thing that needs to happen is a person's will needs to be subject to the Lord entirely. Okay, let's move on. The third and the final indication of a renewed heart is emotions or affections that are aligned to God. Verse 31 seems to indicate some love. It says with their mouth they show much love. But their hearts pursue their own gains. The so love is superficial, expressed with the mouth, that doesn't reach the heart. Now here, Gardner, you know, comments on this, and he points out how so many times people, you know, can be, you know, talking about loving God, loving each other, and all those types of things, but they allow the least little difficulty to alienate them. He says many times our love manifests itself as being a sham. We love when everything's going well. But it's not the kind of love that's supernatural, that's agape. Uh, Pharisees, for example, they couldn't get around the commandment to love your neighbor, so they changed the definition of neighbor, and they said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And that's right in the Talmud. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And uh, Christ says, no, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you, and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That you may be sons. He's saying, the evidence that you are sons and daughters is that you can do what no unregenerate person can do, that you are indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit is producing in you the miraculous. He is enabling you to love somebody who has torn you apart and been an enemy to you. He's enabling you to rejoice in circumstances everybody else would be absolutely wasted over. He is saying, what is the evidence of your sonship? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 commands us, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And so he's saying, Where is the evidence of that supernatural love related to your affections? He goes on, If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? And Satan is ever so subtle in trying to get us to, to think we're Christians with a facade but making us skip over the reality. <clears throat> now, let's look at the last indication. If your hearts have been transformed and they've been given that new orientation, the will of necessity will lead you to holiness. Uh, and you remember one of the fruits that we saw in Matthew 7 that shows that we're the real McCoy is uh, that we're that we're pursuing God's law. And one of the fruits that they are counterfeit is their lawlessness. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay, turn with me. We'll just, we'll quickly end here. Turn with me to a couple passages. Ezekiel 11. And we'll see how he was instructing his congregation on here. What are the results of regeneration? Ezekiel 11, 19 through... 20 he says then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh comma, the rest of the sentence goes on what is the result of having been regenerated having this new heart given he says that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God okay let's look at one more turn to Ezekiel 36 and 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. And so the point here is the evidence of a new heart is the presence of the Holy Spirit within leading us into holiness, walking in God's law. And that's why Paul told the church in Colossae that his goal was to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. This is why his goal with Corinth was that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And that's why Paul told the Corinthians twice he was fearful that his church planting experience there was totally unsuccessful. Twice he he, he, he feared that. He tells Galatia the same thing. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. What was Paul's criteria for success? Well, it was that he has citizens of his churches, you know, people in his churches who are regenerate, whose lives are being transformed, who are 100% uh, committed uh, to the Lord and following after his word in the pursuit of righteousness. There's got to be regeneration, and 100% of our life being dependent upon His grace, but then there's got to be holiness. And if you you're going to go to extremes, if you ditch either side of that equation, you know, uh, Scripture says, "Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure." It's 100% of grace that enables us to work 100% in our in our sanctification. And so, there are other things that are related to Programs, outreach, discipleship that we will and we must engage in. But I will be delighted if I can present every member in this congregation mature in Christ Jesus. And that's my goal. Amen. Father God, we come to you as a congregation that recognizes that it's so easy to be deceived. To be deceived by those who are around us. But Father, to be deceived by our own hearts. You have said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Father, we don't many times even understand our own motives, whether they're pure or not, but we cling to you. We fall before you and say, Lord, do not allow us to fall into the sins that others so easily fall into. Uh, Father, do not let us uh, apostatize like that, uh, uh, that minister who died recently, uh, apostatized and became an atheist. Father, apart from your grace sustaining us, there we would be as well. And so we plead with you. Cause your Holy Spirit to to work powerfully in us. And if there are any here who are unregenerate, change their hearts, transform their hearts, draw them to you. And Father, may we live our lives entirely sold out for Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen.